Welcome to the Sheep Connect New South Wales podcast, a podcast produced for the sheep industry by Sheep Connect New South Wales. Hi, I'm Megan Rogers, Manager of Sheep Connect New South Wales, the sheep industry extension work in New South Wales, which is funded by Australian Wool Innovation. Sheep Connect New South Wales has a membership of over 2,200 and our main aims are to help keep you and your sheep business up to date on the latest information about all things sheep. This episode is all about rebuilding your flock as you recover from drought with a particular focus on reproductive rates with consultant Dr. Jason Tromf. Before I hand you over to Jason, I will mention that this podcast is a recording of the recent Sheep Connect New South Wales webinar on the same topic, which was convened by Sheep Connect's Dr. Fiona MacArthur. For more information on our suite of upcoming webinars, sheepconnectnewsouthwales.com slash events. All right, thanks very much for having me on Sheep Connect New South Wales today and uh, welcome one and all. Look, the sheep industry for years had a gross value of production from um, wool was predominantly wool and a little bit of meat and sat around $3 billion for a long time when we had sort of 150, 170 million sheep. Um, our sheep numbers had come right back, but our gross value of production has gone up profoundly. Um, so from the peak to today, it's probably nearly dropped closer to 80 million sheep or more now. But um, yeah, so numbers have come right back, but returns have escalated. And in fact, the gross value of production has doubled in just the last 10 years. What's interesting, if we were to look at that on a per sheep basis, years ago sheep were probably worth on average um, in relation to their gross value of production about $20 a head. Uh, today that's closer to 150 So it's a sort of seven-fold increase in the value of each of our sheep. And I want you to be anxious about that, um, especially when those that are listening will think, well, hang on a minute, my breeding ewes are worth a lot more than that. And here's just a few of our breeding ewes at home that uh, as part of a trial we were doing measuring wool and meat production um, and what was spray painted on their back is is their returns in that year and this was a couple of years ago. Um, so one of the core questions that I want you to ask yourself is what are your breeding ewes worth today? And I know there's a bit of noise in the market right now with the COVID-19 challenge, but um, I'm I'm proposing to you that a lot of your flocks, as long as you don't have too many ewes that are sort of above six years of age, um, your average ewe value will be um, closer to 300 than 100. Um, so what what is your ewe flock worth and what are you doing to get the best out of that? And uh, one of the things as an industry that's helped drive returns in recent years is we had about a 10% increase in marking rate in the 10 years from 08 to 18 on that graph. A uh, portion of that has been driven uh, through the change in the nature of the flock. Um, we used to have about 10 to 15% non-merino ewes and obviously 85% or so merino ewes. And in that period of time, um, the number of non-merino ewes has, has uh, more than doubled. So that gave reproduction rates a bit of a kickstart. But uh, it's things like the program you're involved in, uh, education through lifetime ewe management, Redwall, Fredwell and the like, 
that's led to some real gains in reproduction in the national flock, uh, as well as a run of better seasons um, up until <laughs> the last couple. And uh, they're not captured in this data, in this graph, because it, there's a long lag phase to get that in. But um, certainly New South Wales, um, in this period of time, this 10 years, you have the biggest ewe flock and you had the biggest gains in reproduction in that period of time. I think it was about 11% gain for the state in that period, whereas there's some other states that are only sitting at six and seven. Um, so you really were punching above your weight and carrying a lot of the industry, but then clearly in the last couple of years, seasonal conditions have been really challenging. So a big reason why the, the supply and demand dynamics or the supply dynamics where it is today is centred around the challenge in New South Wales, biggest U numbers and probably had some of the most significant reductions in marking rates that's still being borne out in the lack of availability of, of mutton and lamb today. The focus of this presentation though is looking forward and looking forward and rebuilding a flock and focusing on yes our user were worth a lot, what's the value of an extra lamb? And this is some data that John Young um, from Western Australia has just updated for me in the last little bit. And uh, it was based on $7 a kilo carcass weight. Well, um, those figures are sort of relevant for now. Now prices have come off. And a lot of you will be looking at it and you'll say, hang on a minute, you know, it's $7 a kilo, a 20-odd kilo lamb. Um, he's forgotten about some of the value. So this is after the cost of production. So it's more closer to like a net price for those lambs. And um, you can see that the younger age groups are used, the value of an extra lamb is not the same as the adult use. So a lamb ain't a lamb. What do I mean by that is um, the uterine environment, um, lactation in the maiden ewe and a ewe lamb is, is, is compromised compared to the adult. That's not a message to tell you not to focus on them. Uh, it's just being real about the value of the lamb that's generated. Uh, there's a bit of a, a trade-off there, you might say. But for some listeners, as I walk through this presentation, you you may have done a lot of work on your adult use and, and your biggest opportunity for improvement may well be in your maiden. So don't take these figures as a, a turn-off. It's just uh, as in turning you off, focusing on that, but just trying to... Um, Give you an idea of, of the value of lambs generated out of extra uh, out, out of uh, use at the moment. Um, the one message that people could also take there is they should keep more older ewes. Now I've had a close look at that, and and so is John. And you've got a whole education program around that um, about retention of older ewes. And basically, there's some gains to be made potentially through that, but. What brings it unstuck is mortality rates in older ewes. So if you can keep ewes six, seven, eight-year-old and not have a sharp spike in their mortality rate, there's money to be made. But um, in lots of the data sets, we see a big escalation in the loss of um, ewes at, in those age brackets, and that can wipe off a lot of the benefit. So just be conscious of that. So not sure if you've got any questions, Fiona, but I'm going to move into the heart of the presentation around some core ways to really grow your flock and talk about this whole. No, that sounds great. I'll interrupt you, Jason, if we um, get some questions that are relevant to the current slides. Right. So the first one I'm going to talk about is finding your opportunities. And I reckon this is really critical. 
for the listeners here, and you mightn't have all your mates with you right now, or those that are involved in your in your business, you need to really sit down and and kind of ponder where you're at and where your opportunities lie. And I think regardless of whether you're a meat or a wool uh, flock, you feel in your emphasis. Um, for lots of operations now, lots of merino operations as well, a significant proportion of your income is coming out of um, surplus sheep styles and your livestock trading profit. So, and the focus today is reproduction. So, as far as growing your flock, the hot dot in this dartboard will always be your feed base and how many ewes you can run. And there's many of us that are, are trying to build back to our long-term stocking rates. Around that is your scanning potential. Uh, and, and I regard it as sort of the potential to um, kick goals rather than the conversion is actual lamb survival. So by the time we aggregate this up, that's how many live lambs are born per hectare and then how quick they grow give you the kilograms weaned per hectare. And then you get a choice. If you can kick goals along that pathway, you get a choice to either sell or rebuild. And I say the farmer that wins in 2020 is the one that can do both. We need to sustain turnoff rates, we need to sustain wool production, but we need to rebuild our flocks simultaneously. And you can't do that unless you work on your underlying reproduction rates. You can't have your cake and eat it too. So I say there's three core practices to allow you to grow your flock. And you've heard all of this before, but it's it's the devil's in the detail. It's about application. You all know you should be proactively scoring your ewes. That doesn't mean you have to have all, all ewes in every other day. You might have a senatal mob that you're keeping an eye on, and when you're seeing movement in them, then you start to make decisions. There are opportunities throughout the reproduction cycle where there's big spread, particularly at weaning, and where there's spread, there's opportunity for management. So it can be used as a tactical tool, but it's also used as a strategic tool to set targets the key points in time. So we score at weaning to set up for joining. We score at scanning to set up for lambing. Those that have heard me talk before understand how passionate I am about scanning for multiples. And there's some pretty handsome scanning rates around this year. And um, I'll talk more about the virtues of, of, of scanning, but um, it's it's another must-do practice for most flocks. Not all, if, you, if you're getting very few like uh, less than 10% twins, this sort of thing, and a lot of dries, well, maybe wet drying is a better option. But in a lot of cases, um, scanning for multiples is the way to go. And then it's all about resource allocation, which sheep gets what and why. They're must-do practices. Now, what we're in the section of the talk is all about identifying your opportunity. And as an industry per 100 years, we're scanning 130 fetuses and marking 90% of lambs. That's 40 lambs lost between scanning and lamb marking per 100 ewes, which represents about 30%. And it's driven by, on average, an 85% single survival and a 60% twin survival. So in other words, that means in a mob of twins marking 120%. There's farmers out there, and, and this isn't research data gone mad, that from the same starting point are marking over 110% of lambs and they've more than halved that lamb loss. And they're doing it by getting marking or survival rates in their singles up into the 90s, so around 95%, and in their twin mobs, 80% survival, which represents about 160 marking. 
Now, there'll be some online that are saying they're even doing better than that again. But what I wanted to do was represent something that I feel is is achievable. Um, and it, what I want the listeners to do is to think about where you sit against those benchmarks and where your opportunities lie um, to take, take the next step. And it's not always about um, feeding more. It's often about reallocation and using your resources um, most efficiently and effectively. And I think to finish this section around where your opportunity lies, we have a dearth of ewes in this country. Okay, the lowest flock in 100 years and the breeding ewe numbers are down to sort of mid 30 millions. Um, pretty scary situation. But what this slide per thousand ewes is showing us, by the time you take out those that scan dry, die, or don't rear their lambs, there's a third of the national ewe base that are nothing but glorified weathers. Now, one would say that's okay, they still cut wool, but it's not okay if you've bought a ram and fed the ewe with the intent to get a lamb. So what this data is saying is about 68% of the ewes in Australia that go to a ram actually rear a lamb. By the time you take out those that die, scan dry, um, and so on. So it's, it's a big opportunity in our ewe base um, to really improve. And there's flocks now on the same front that can get that scanning rate uh, quite high um, so that there's very few dries. They improve their nutritional management of their ewes so their annual death rate's sort of one or two percent, not six or seven, uh, and get the sort of survival rates I previously talked about. So suddenly 90% of their ewe base is actually rearing a lamb. And there's big opportunities in that looking forward um, as you can see with the surplus price of ewes around the country, um, there's a real shortage. So pinpoint where your opportunity lies, there's many options there. Then it's all about targeting your feed resources to achieve that outcome. Basically, we know nutrition drives a heap of critical things throughout the reproduction cycle. Ovulation rate, placental development, that's how well the nutrients is transferred from mum to bub. And then the fetal growth predominantly occurs in late pregnancy to set that birth weight up as the colostrum and milk production comes in to feed that neonatal lamb and then ultimately lamb growth rate. They're all driven by nutrition as well as is the, the development of secondary follicles in particular in the wool. Um, so you have more uh, fine wool uh, in volume. Uh, so you increase both cut and, and ironically, better nutrition in this case can reduce micron by better feeding the lamb in mum's tummy. So nutrition can really count and it drives scanning rates. Per, per condition score in Merinos, we talk about 20 extra lambs per condition score. A lot of you will have heard this message before, but you need to know what the responsiveness is in your ewes. So next time you hit it with a drought or a feed deficit, if you've got a ewe that only gives you 10 extra fetuses per condition score, you'll feed them for survival. If you've got ewes that give you 40 extra lambs per condition score, you may well feed for production. So you need to know your responsiveness of your own genotype. In those with non-merino flocks that are online, um, what the uh, Maternals Project has found they deliver about a 24 or 5% increase in scanning per condition score. And those that reared twins the year before at the same condition score will conceive about 15% more lambs the following year. So there's some really fertile ewes we have out there in our flocks. And, and that's why at weaning of those twins, we want to get them back in condition and manage them well. 
So with our feed, we must allocate it accordingly. And if you don't allocate it accordingly, unfortunately, we've learned in both tough seasons and good nutrition seasons for different reasons, we can have high urine lamb loss. And it's all about feed allocation. 60% of the lamb loss in this country in previous autopsy work is centred around that starvation mismothering complex, which we've tried to unpack with more of the research. And on the contrary, uh, there's a lot of dystopia as well where ewes are being um, overfed and having high birth weight lambs and you've got that disproportionate size of the lamb to the ewe. So on the same farm, you can have both occurring particularly where the scanning and feed allocation isn't, isn't um, taking place. We know birth weight drives survival. Many of you talked about that before, but I want you to be anxious about it and get out in your twin lambing mobs this year and weigh some of the lambs that are lost without causing too much disturbance. And if they've got a three on front of the number, they were destined to die. They have an inadequate proportion of body tissue relative to their surface area and they can't keep themselves warm and get up and thrive and survive. So for those that are lambing in the winter and early spring, you've got to set these birth weights up to protect the lamb. And what the research tells us is basically we need a third of a condition score in merinos in favour of the twin bearing ewe. So we, we reallocate feed away from the single towards the twin um, and they're the relationships between ewe condition score at lambing and, and lamb survival. What you'll notice, this was in merinos to merinos. So those that are quick on their feet will say, hang on a minute, at four score, if I've got my merino ewe joined to a dorset sire and I haven't been keeping an eye on the ASBVs for birth weight, that black line for the singles would tip over, and absolutely it would. So um, this was merino to merino data. On the vein I just discussed, if I present some of the maternals data and thanks to Andrew Thompson and the team for this information, Ralph Brent did the research, uh, that team together. New condition score does have a relationship with lamb survival in maternal or non-merino ewes, but we need to reallocate feed even closer here, even more accurately, and we need the condition score to be in favour of the twins in the order of a half a score gap in favour of the twins. Because if the best survival of the ewes and the lambs in this Search came at about 2.8 condition score in the singles, not out at three and a half score like there's used trekking around your state now with the great break that's occurring. You need to either limit their intake or put them on a paddock with less legume and more fibrous feed that's maybe lost a lot of quality, say the paddock that might have got out of control. So in a strange way, you put them on more feed so that less bite they get um, he's, he's got um, more, you know, got lower protein and um, energy in it. What I often find in big seasons has been a mistake in Victoria is farmers put the singles on the paddocks with the shorter feed and they have huge dystopia issues because that feed is about an inch to two inches high or in the order of 1,000 to 1,500, 1,200, and intake is not limited and quality is premium. So you've either got to really restrict the singles intake if they're above target or put them on a paddock that um, they're eating a, a, a room and full of um, lower quality feed. Clearly, there's a great advantage in setting our twins up condition score wise. But again, we want, we want them fit, not obesely fat. 
So if I move on around the adaptability, we, we've all learned the hard way with our enterprises that we have to have really adaptable enterprises. And old mate Hanrahan here that hit, hits the intersection and one year it's a bushfire or a flood, next year it's a drought. All the conversation in our industry is always around the weather and we'll all be ruined, said Hanrahan, if this bloody rain doesn't stop. Well, that might be the, the vogue in 2020 or it was, you know, it's the drought the year before. The focus has got to be on hitting that intersection and instead of being fly-blown like Hanrahan is in this picture, we want a kit bag with a heap of wherewithal so he makes really informed decisions and can pull that tool out of his kit bag to deal with that situation. So take the discussion away from the weather of the day and basically building our deck of cards so that we can deal with whatever's thrown at us. And in building that deck of cards, it's kind of like bulletproofing our business. We need to know our enemy and the impact of seasonal variability in our location. You know, is it the autumn breaks? Is it the failed springs? How's that overlay with our enterprise? Where do we come unstuck? And then we get in and really review our strategies to make sure we've got adequate flexibility up our sleeve. So if we end up in the trenches and we need to dodge a bullet, you can draw that card. And one of the things that hats off to the whole sheep industry and Sheep Connect in New South Wales has been around the promotion of containment pens. They're a great example of what we're talking about here. They're an attacking and defensive tool all wrapped up in one. You can put animals in them to protect your ground cover, but you can also put lambs in there to feedlot them, uh, to, to hit a target specification, or you could hold ewes back in those containment pens to build leaf area to improve winter production. So they're not just a defensive tool, they're a tool that you can use in a range of ways. And there's many other examples of, of that, that productive but adaptable farms or, or agile is the word of the day um, that, that they have up their sleeve. And interestingly, as part of the More Lambs More Often project we did a few years ago, we looked at benchmarking in a different way. Rather than the one-year analysis that's heavily promoted, this was off mixed farms, we looked at the analysis on a five-year period and it changed many of the conclusions. Typically, the conclusions were that on merino farms, it was all about wool cut per hectare at low cost of production and reproduction didn't count. When we looked at it over a five-year period, which had a couple of ordinary seasons in that five years, suddenly the conclusions of the five years were different. And 80% of the difference between the top farms and the rest came in livestock trading profit driven by slightly higher stocking rate around seven percent higher marking rates and better average price for their surplus ewes and lambs that they sold so um, that puts an interesting slant on the need to be adaptable because if you're going to drive stocking rates which is great what this data is saying is you need to do it in a pretty complete way you don't just pile them on and and it'll be what it will be. The only way you can deliver those three outcomes simultaneously, stocking rate, reproduction and price, is to manage the sheep well and have a really fantastic feed base. So I'll touch on briefly breeding for success. Um, basically, the genetics that we have on our farm really set our potential. And what we're trying to do with genetics is turn all our input, energy and protein, run it through this sheep to to produce two great products. Your balance in those products are your choice. And we've got all our farm and our ingenuity and our effort. 
And what I encourage people to do when they think about the role of genetics in rebuilding their flock is to not think necessarily in terms of maximum, i.e. to get uh, higher meat, higher loin chops that you can see there, we go out and select for growth. Well, you just be careful with that card because, you know, selection for growth can trade off on birth weight. Selection for growth can increase adult size if you don't manage it right. Selection for growth, if it's in extreme, can compromise finishing ability. These things need to be in balance. Just like when we see the wool bales there and we're looking at those wool bales and we think the pathway to cut more wool on this farm is to select for more wool cut. Well, I do challenge that because what typically is happening on commercial merino farms is there's already a significant gap between their genetic potential for wool cut and their realised wool cut. And by then going out and saying, I'm going to select for more wool cut again, basically that wool follicle is a, is a real drain on that breeding ewe. And one of the things I'm encouraging you to think about is what's the optimum or appropriate wool cut for your environment and the way you run that animal. Because it's not unlimited. Uh, and if you push it to extremes, again, it can have trade-off around things like survival of lambs, um, particularly recent research again from, uh, from Andrew Thompson in the area of Wiener Fate. There is a ne strong negative correlation with yielding clean fleece weight. So you, so you can overdo uh, selection for some of these things. So what I'm saying is to be fit for purpose, that means an animal's got to be firstly fit for the farm and suitable for market. It's all about balance. It's not about extreme selection. It's about understanding the track you're running it around and how you manage that breeding ewe, particularly her condition score profile, how you run that sheep, and then what target markets you've got in mind. And one of the things, and Megan will smile here, us blokes when we sit down to write a breeding objective or, or think about anything else, particularly eating in my case, we want more of everything. So we say, I want more wool cut, I want more growth, I want more of this and that. The first thing you need to do in your breeding objective is audit your flock's fitness. And that's the ability to survive, grow and thrive in a, in a particular environment. And in the sheep terms, we have some great ways of auditing your fitness. What's your lamb survival rate? What's your weaner survival? What's your, what's your breeding ewe survival? Maiden ewe reproduction performance. The ability to maintain condition score under nutritional stress. These things are impacted by genes. Take the last one, for example. Condition score has been promoted heavily as a management tool, yet 25% of condition score is set by genetics with a strong correlation of about 0.9 back to muscle and fat as we measure it. So if you want to select for an animal to maintain body condition score and particularly take advantage of that under nutritional stress, you need to put some emphasis on it in your breeding objective. Conversely, if there's a listener online that says, well, my ewes never come under score three in the worst drought, well, then it doesn't matter about the size of a fuel tank, whether it's long range or short range, because you're pulling in and filling her up all the time. So it depends how you run your ewe in your country. But do the audit of your flock's fitness before you say you want more of everything. And one of the challenges, this is from the Peter Westblade data, when you look at the relationship with fleece weight to body weight ratio, and basically the animals that are high on that y-axis are animals that were putting more fleece weight on their body relative to their size, um, 
those animals, as you can clearly see, are the leanest animals in the data set. So what the R squared is telling us is about 80% of the variation in condition score was explained by fleece weight to body weight ratio. So if you select hard for that, um, you can really compromise um, the condition score of those animals. Might not have much trade-off in the weather, but it will have in the sister in the paddock, the breeding ewe full of twin lambs in late pregnancy. So really get a good, clear, defined breeding objective and select to that. On finishing that um, genetic one, one of the things I didn't cover is the number of lambs wean trait that relates into this presentation is now getting busted into three traits. Instead of one composite trait, it'll be basically percentage pregnant, litter size, and lamb survival. So for listeners online, wherever your um, need or opportunity is, you can start to directly select for that. And I'll be putting more emphasis and leaning back on your ram breeder to make sure that they're presenting this sort of information. Another way of me saying that is don't buy the ram, ram if you don't know it's damn. So uh, there's too many animals being sold with a lack of maternal information. And that maternal information is critical if you want to find the right genes for things like um, survival in your flock. So finally, finishing off on lamb survival, the lambing paddock, from now on, if you're not already thinking of it that way, think of it as a nursery, not a paddock. For that month of the year, it's critical that there's adequate feed and water, freedom from predators, shelter, privacy, and minimal disturbance. And that's all got to happen out in our paddock, not indoors. You can see here on my farm, and this is when my daughter was two-year-old, and that's our ewe lambs lambing. Well, she wasn't observing social distancing, but you can see how tight that they're sticking to their lambs. So certainly maternal behaviour is another opportunity to look at into the future. Um, but it's about really setting that paddock up, and that might involve spelling the paddock, uh, in a years like yours in New South Wales, maybe you don't lock them off completely because the paddock's going to lose feed quality and you need to strategically crash graze them a bit before to set them up for lambing. It all depends and varies year on year. But the key here is about paddock allocation and using your best paddocks. And what we've been working on is this phenomenon of mismothering um, in this area. And this little video, it's a little silent video of a plot. Is, is from some of the research we've done and Amy Lockwood's done on, on this lambing density work. And you can see U390 here has dropped her lamb and the other U's coming in and trying to draw the, the lamb away, uh, 416. And she, that continues on and on and she eventually drags that lamb away and then lies down and has her own lamb and discards the other one. So that's rogue U behaviour. Then as far as the rogue lamb here, U140's had her own lamb, and then here's another mismothered lamb coming in and annoying her during the birth process, pushing her off her birth site so she goes over to see another U, and the calamity just continues. Eventually, that U140, eventually, about an hour later or so, had her second lamb. The unfortunate thing when I autopsied it, the lamb was the same birth weight as the live lamb, but had died due to oxygen deprivation in the birth process because the ewe had been too disturbed. So some of the things that we've been doing with support of AWI and MLA in recent years is the lambing density work and looking for what is the optimum mob size. And again, like the message about condition score and conception, you need to work through this for your own flock. There's no one hard, fast number. 
The return on investment in reducing mob size will depend on the type of fencing and water you need to use, the stocking rate, what preg status, the optimum mob size for twins is typically a lot less than that for singles because there's more opportunity um, to reduce that disturbance and mismothering. What return on investment you want, whether it's um, maternals, um, you know, sheep or or or, um, or merino sheep, and and what um, advantage you're going to use from that fencing to to use for pasture utilisation, because it is one time where more paddocks and smaller paddocks, pasture utilisation and reproduction can live together. Typically, stocking rate and reproduction is talked about as being antagonistic. This is one case where they can run together by having more smaller paddocks more control of utilisation, then you've got those paddocks to use to, to spread use out for lambing. You will get a better return on investment for doing that for twins than uh, singles. And there's a ready reckoner that the project's built to help you work through that. So just in closing, the foundation of this pyramid to rebuild your flocks and improve reproductive efficiency centres around scanning, really reallocating feed and allocating your feed resources accordingly to singles and twins and really seeking for that gap in favour of the twins of a third to a half of a score. Too many people are scanning their ewes, they dot them, they leave them together and they come back and when they're inoculating they separate them two weeks or three weeks before lambing. The reason we scan is to drive pregnancy nutrition, to drive birth weight and to set up lambing paddocks for paddock allocation. There's opportunities uh, in both but you deny yourself of that if you leave them together post-scanning. The quickest way to push them apart is to do it most immediately off the scanning crop. And then we've got this extra, and they're the types of gains that we can get in ewe and lamb survival from those avenues, quite profound. Then we've got this extra opportunity um, by reducing mob sizes to really lift marking rates, you know, per 100 years less. Um, you know, lifting marking rates around 5% in twins and, and a lot less in singles. So um, we prioritise those smaller paddocks and better nurseries, maybe even use some temporary fencing um, to really segregate things. Um, so basically in closing, uh, they were sort of some of the key ways to rebuild your flock. I suppose one thing I failed to say is if there's more than a 20% gap in the marking rate between your maiden ewes and your adults, then there's a real opportunity to get more out of that maiden ewe cohort. And in many merino farms, the majority of the merino to merino matings are done over the younger ewes. And if, if those maiden ewes are making up a big proportion of those merino to merino matings and you want to rebuild your flock, we've got to get that maiden ewe performance up. And that's centred around growing her out and hitting her growth targets, getting her up to in the order of 90% of her adult size to when she goes to the ram. And there's many farms I now know that scan within 5 or 10%, 5% of their adults with their maidens. And they are a bit more of a challenge with lamb survival, but they're marking, you know, around 10% less. But there's also other farms I know that are getting 25 or 30% lower marking rate to use joint their maidens compared to their adults. So think about the gaps that exist there. The ewe lamb opportunity is something we're doing. Uh, I've got a national project that's working on building understanding in that as we speak um, and get a better understanding about what drives conception, uh, lamb survival, um, ewe recovery and the like. 
uh, it is a good opportunity, but it's something that I would only be pursuing once you've ticked the boxes in your adults and maiden ewes. And then you need to have a bit of a stock take of whether you've got a genotype that's appropriate for that early life reproduction. So it's something that needs to be thought through and it's probably not the first avenue to improve necessarily um, the, the reproduction rate in your flock. I want you to tick other boxes first and then look to the ewe lambs as an additional opportunity to grow things in the future. But having surveyed 500 farmers nationally as part of that project, they are by far the ewe lambs, the most underutilized cohort in the national flock with the most varying results. So there's, there's opportunity to exploit there, but whether that opportunity is for you needs to be thoroughly thought through. Um, so Megan, maybe, and Fiona, it might be more appropriate when we're further down the track with that project um, to maybe come back and have a talk about the outputs in the ewe lambs area. Um, it is something that's getting a lot of interest this year, but I don't want you to do that as a distraction from your main game. So it's all about turning our reproductive potential into profit. Um, this is the last slide just to leave you off with a picture um, of some young ewes uh, that are only sort of uh, five months old, uh, twin ewe lambs that are growing nice and quick on their mums. Um, you know, we can get some serious production efficiency into the Australian sheep industry and, um, you know, I'm excited to support people in that. And uh, I suppose in closing, yeah, if you're interested in any stuff, um, in addition to the great info you get through um, Sheep Connect, go and have a look at lambsalive.com. We have a, a boot camp coming up next week, so you can go and have a look. So thanks very much for the opportunity, Fiona and Megan. enjoyed this episode of It's Time For You, the Sheep Connect New South Wales podcast. We'd appreciate it if you could share this with, within your networks. You can also, if you haven't already, subscribe to the AWI podcast, The Yarn. We'd love for you to stay in contact with Sheep Connect New South Wales and you can do this in a number of ways. You can join our network by visiting our website www.sheepconnectnsw.com.au you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at SheepConnectNSW and hopefully we might see you at some of our workshops and events that we run throughout New South Wales. Thanks again for joining us today on It's Time For You and hopefully we'll see you next time. Bye for now. <music>